Well, good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for being here on a holiday weekend. Thanks to Inglewood folks for coming a wee bit earlier, and Bethany folks. Well, I hope that extra hour at home and of rest was good for you. It was good for us. Uh, when my kids were little, they obviously were around church quite a bit. One of the perils of the pastoral vocation is your children are always with you in the ministry that you get to do. I say peril lightly. It is often a great joy. So from the time that my kids were infants, like think like a couple months old, they were with us in worship. They would come to church. They would be around the people of our church. My first two kids, Will and Hadley, were born in western Colorado at the first church that we served together. And then Hadley, or excuse me, Amelia was born when we were here at Bethany. And so each kid has had a different experience of coming into church and being welcomed as part of the church family. And it's honestly one of my favorite things about church is when you have kids, if that is part of how God has called you, if that's how things unfold for your family, recognizing that's not true for everyone, uh, it's just a joy to see people welcome new babies into the church. And it provides you with a unique social opportunity as a parent. Because you know this, if you've had little kids, it's such a delight to hold a baby, to celebrate a baby, and it's also a delight to give that baby to someone else and let them hold it and let them enjoy your little one for just a minute, right? But here's the interesting thing. When kids are as young as even a few weeks old, they know something about who you are as their parent. They know how you smell, because we all have a particular scent. We all use different laundry soap. We just smell a certain way, right? They know that smell. They know the sound of your voice. They even know the feel of, of you, of the different contours of your body, because you hold them. If you have little kids who are up late at night, as several of mine were, you hold them a lot, trying to get them to go to sleep, right? Like every parent in the room can do this instinctively, right? Hold the baby, pat the baby, right? But here's the thing, when you hand your little one over to someone else, how quickly do they know that it's not you? Like that, right? And some babies respond to it with just, okay, whatever, someone else is holding me. I think younger children in birth order, like the the littlest ones, tend to be the most willy-nilly about it. Like, yeah, I'm used to being handed around, like whatever. But older kids, I think this is a particular burden, they smell someone different, If they're handed to someone in the church, they smell that you're not mom and that you're not dad. And all of a sudden, they start to get a little fussy, a little tense. It was always uh, a bit of a surprise and a delight to me which person I could hand my kid to and they wouldn't get upset. (laughs) I could hand them to the most random person on earth and this person would be in our church, this person would be, you know, someone that I saw every week, and they could hold them and the baby would be perfectly fine. But if I handed them to a good friend... (laughs) or someone that I knew well, they may just freak out and start screaming. It didn't matter who it was. They just knew that it wasn't mom and it wasn't dad. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Every parent has observed some version of this story. And in today's sermon, we are talking about a version of that in the church. We've been studying the letter of 1 John with our church community here at Bethany. And our theme through this has been, God is calling us to love God and to love others. And there's some interference that is happening in the early church that John is writing to address. 1 John is a letter that was written, shared among a group of churches in the ancient Near East who were facing something that didn't feel quite right. Kind of like when you hand your kid off to someone and they just kind of know something's amiss, something is awry, like this doesn't feel like mom, this doesn't smell like dad. 
the church was being confronted with some internal problems that was leading to distress. The baby was starting to cry. Does that make sense? And what the problems were was false teaching, was heresy, half-truth, just a, a little bit off from the truth of Jesus Christ. And this is something that John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, observed and cared deeply about. He did not want the church to continue to live in such a way where they were merely tolerating things that were partially true. He wanted them to encounter the truth of Jesus Christ so they could continue in their mission. Today we're talking about idols because it is the very end of the letter of 1 John. This letter would have been read aloud. You would have come to church, come to worship in the ancient Near East, and the sermon that day would have been the reading of this letter. That's how they would have taught and moved each other forward in the gospel. And so it's interesting that the very last line of this not super long book is this clear and present warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last word that people would have heard as this letter was read. Why would John end with a word like that? Shouldn't he end on something inspirational and exciting and beautiful? No, he ends with this very sobering word, keep yourselves from idols. Remember, he's saying little children to them because he loves them. This is a term of endearment. This is not pejorative. So what do we do with this? How do we, as two churches worshiping together as the church in the 21st century, take seriously what John is saying? Well, we're going to look at it under a couple of different headings. If you're a note taker, this is an outline for where we're going today. We're going to talk about what is an idol. The word that was used in the translation that was read for us a moment ago is anything that is in the seat of power in your heart. So what is that? How do we identify that? Jesus' encounters often were about idols and counterfeit gods. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the idols of the east side. And by the way, I, I like to practice that if I'm going to point out a log in someone else's eye, I should point out the speck in my own eye. So there'll be a little bit of, con- of conversation there. And then we're going to talk about finding and replacing our idols. So let's begin with talking about what is an idol. Tremendously helpful to me this week in my studies is Timothy Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods. How many of you have read it or heard of it? By the way, Counterfeit Gods, you should read it. It's wonderful. It was written in 2009 after a period of economic turmoil. It's quite timely to read it now, by the way. Now, here's how Keller, one of the many definitions he offers of what a counterfeit god or idol is. A counterfeit god or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I'll give you a minute to try to think about one thing, just one thing, that might fall into that realm in your life. Idols can be perfectly good things. Idols can be your work. It can be your parenting or your grandparenting. It can be the art that you pursue in your spare time. It can be love and romantic relationships. Almost anything can become an idol. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, Our hearts are idol factories. We are in the business of producing idols all the time. Now, we see this illustrated in the scriptures in the very beginning of God's Ten Commandments. God says this, You shall have no other gods before me. This is the very first of the Ten Commandments. Start at the top. Everything else trickles down from this. You will worship the Lord your God, one God, that made the people of Israel very strange in the ancient Near East. Everyone else was worshiping many gods. Everyone else was kind of in a free-for-all type of situation. But in the people of Israel's hearts was this law 
Have no other gods before me. Don't give your love and affection to anything else before you give it to God. Hard to do, but foundational to how you understand the rest of the Ten Commandments. If you look at the rest of the Ten Commandments, to love and serve others, to not covet others' stuff, to not commit adultery, to not commit murder, it all trickles down from this. Because if God is sitting in the rightful place that he belongs, in the seat of power in your heart and mine, the rest of his laws and rules make a lot more sense. Now, this is also an illustration of some expectations. Expectations will always help us understand where our idols are located. Um, let's see. Well, I got my slides mixed up a little bit. So, we're going to look at the artwork instead. Remember this scene? This is the golden calf. So Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are first introduced. Exodus 32 is where the golden calf comes on the scene. You might remember this from Sunday school. Maybe, maybe not. I'm going to just kind of summarize the story for us. The people of God are following God through their time in exile in the wilderness. And Moses, their leader, goes up the mountain to have a conversation with God. He does this at different times during the Exodus to make sure that the people are staying on track with what God wants for them. While he's up in the mountain talking to God, the people stay at the foot of the mountain, and Aaron, his second-in-command, is down there making sure things don't get out of hand. Nice job, Aaron. Things completely get out of hand. But here's what happens that's so interesting. The people of God are used to the idea, they are accustomed to the notion that they live in a theocracy. In other words, God is in charge of their nation. There will be a deity in the seat of power for them. Americans, this is hard for us to conceptualize because we don't live like this. We live in a democracy where we elect and elevate people into leadership that we entrust with power. In, in, In ancient Israel, it was not like this. God was expected to be in power over the people of Israel. Now, when the people of Israel are waiting for Moses to come down the mountain, their wheels start to spin. They start to get a little fidgety, a little anxious. I don't know that anyone else in the room can relate to this. When you're waiting on something to happen, your mind starts to go places, doesn't it? Where you start to go, oh, I wonder what's happening up there. Oh, I wonder if Moses fell. Did he trip? Did he get crushed by a rock? Where is God? What's God doing? And their anxieties, their impatience, leads them to approach Aaron, Moses' friend, and say to Aaron, hey, uh, that Moses guy... He's, he's gone. We don't know what happened to him. We know he did some good things and God used him and all that kind of thing, but we're a little restless here, Aaron. Can you help us? We want to make a God. And I don't know what got into Aaron. He should have known better, but he says, sure, bring me all your gold and we'll melt it all together and we'll make a golden calf. The human imagination run amok. <laughs> is happening right here. And the people of Israel go from worshiping one God, Yahweh, to forming a completely new God made out of their own imagination and out of their own wealth and resources. Thank goodness we don't live like that now, huh? We're so beyond this, aren't we? The story of Exodus 20 and of Exodus 32 is that people who lose patience, who lose the capacity to wait on the Lord, are very quickly deceived and are very quickly almost run into the ground. These folks are quick to fashion an idol because they're tired of waiting on the old thing and they want a new thing. Is that a problem today? We're tired of of the old thing. We just like, give me the newest headline, give me the latest video, give me the next thing. Here's the funny thing. 
John, the author of this letter, he's an old man at the time of this writing. He is many years into his leadership in the church. He is many years since the days that he followed Jesus around, was physically in Jesus' presence. And I love this, and this is one of the reasons I surround myself with people who are older than wiser than me. People who are older than wiser than me and than you, they've seen it. They've seen a few things. They've watched the trends come and go. They've seen this latest scholarship of this latest thing, and they know enough to kind of go, okay, like, let's see how this plays out. The shadow side of that is cynicism and a bitterness toward the new thing. But what John is doing here is not cynicism or bitterness. He understands that the people of Israel were quick to be deceived. He understands that it's not a big leap from worshiping God to worshiping a false god. And so as he writes this letter, these images, the golden calf, the Ten Commandments, the people of God running amok, these are in his mind as he compassionately tells the people of God, take idols seriously. Don't make room for them in your life. You have got to be willing to address them. Now, Jesus continued this same exact approach to idols in his life and ministry. Jesus had interactions with people all the time. Whether they knew it or not, they brought their idols to him. And one of Jesus' great gifts to us is that he helps us see the things that we cannot see. He helps us see the ways that we are bent and twisted toward idols much faster than we can see it ourselves. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is approached by the rich young ruler, this young man who has arrived. He is there. He is making money. He is driving a nice car. He lives in an exclusive neighborhood. He's got all the things. And he approaches Jesus and says to him, hey, I think I'm pretty close to being perfect. Which, by the way, if you are approaching Jesus and saying, I think I'm pretty close to being perfect, go sit down. (laughs) Like, don't have that conversation anymore. You're already completely off the map. But he can't stop. He has this dialogue with Jesus, and he approaches Jesus like a spiritual vending machine. Like, I think I've put in enough quarters. Could you please kick out eternal life? I would really like to have that. And Jesus, in his compassion, doesn't just slap him on the wrist, doesn't just set him straight, kind of, you know, smack him around a little bit. What Jesus does in his grace, and he will do this for you if you ask him. What Jesus does in his grace is he holds up a mirror. And he says to this young man, do you see what I see? Do you recognize that there are some problems in your life? Specifically, Jesus says this to him. You, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell all your possessions, all that stuff that you think makes you so great. And give the money to the poor. Don't just liquidate your assets. Give it to someone else. You want to talk to somebody who has lots of things? Asking them to get rid of their things is one thing, but giving it to someone else, oh, that'll rip their heart out. And you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now, Jesus is being a little facetious here, but he's not far off the mark. And what he's doing is he's drilling into the rich young ruler's heart, not just his mind. It's far too easy for modern people to intellectualize the problem of idols. Jesus won't let that happen to this rich young ruler. He's not going to let him just keep it up here and the lofty appeals to keep the law and do the right things and check the boxes and all will be well. No, 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 no. He's saying the things that you value the most are the exact things that I'm going to ask of you. Because that idol has too much power in your life. And in one of the saddest passages of all of Scripture... The rich young ruler walks away from Jesus. It says he went away sad because he had many things. It's tragic to be that close to eternal life, to be 
a hair's breadth away from life with God, life with the Savior, and to just walk away. It should convict all of us that we are all capable of that, of looking straight on at what the Savior has to offer to us and saying, yeah, you know, I don't want to do that. That's too much, Jesus. That's too costly. Disciples of Jesus, you don't get to say that to the Lord. If he asks it of you, we must say, as Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if you say so, I will. If you say so, I will. Now, let's get a little personal. Let's talk about some idols that are running around us here on the east side. We can relate to this rich young ruler, many of us. If you don't feel like you got a lot of possessions, if you don't feel like your financial house is in order, if you are sick of renting, if your car payment is maxing you out, let me just say that you are still in the top 1% to 2% of people in terms of wealth in the entire world. So let's just assume as a premise that every one of us has far more than we could ever want or need, recognizing that there is still scarcity and poverty in our midst. We'll talk about that in a sec. What does it look like to have idols where we live? We might look like the rich young ruler, where our stuff is impeding our ability to interact with the personal work of Jesus Christ. I will tell you one of my idols is how I appear to others. I want to be able to look capable and confident before other people. And so when things attack that, when circumstances sort of pull that down for me, it's really difficult for me to navigate that. I think I'm the only person in the room that struggles with this, so I'll just talk about this for a minute. Uh, I was washing dishes at our kitchen sink the other day, and uh, our dishwasher is over here to my left. It was open so I could put dishes in there. So I'm washing dishes, kind of putting stuff away, and I was washing our coffee carafe, which is glass. You know where this is going. Washing it, starting to dry it. It slips out of my hands because I'm a clumsy person. If you've spent any time around me, I will break something valuable. Don't worry about it. And the coffee craft doesn't land in the sink where it would have been so much easier to clean up. No, it goes bump, 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 smash into my dishwasher, sending glass all throughout the apparatus of the dishwasher. And I'm standing there going, oh, rats. But do you know what's happening to me in that moment? I'm feeling a warmth kind of behind my neck. My amygdala is kind of starting to spike. The dopamine is starting to run away from me. What's happening is, is I am starting to feel like I'm a klutz. I can't handle things. This is why we can't have nice things, right? I'm starting to feel the tearing down of my very impressive outward focus of how capable and confident I want to look. So when I smash the coffee carafe to pieces, my family will tell you this, Uh, I get embarrassed. It takes me a while to recover from it. I clear my throat a bunch, which is just a strange sort of like psychosomatic thing. I don't really understand that. (laughs) I worked with a guy who, when he was really nervous about something, he would go clean the countertops in the kitchen. Like, (laughs) so we all have these weird little foibles. Like, let's just name that. Now, I'm clumsy. I break things. It tears down my idol of wanting to look capable and confident. How about you? How about you? When do you feel that spike in your adrenaline? When do you feel your lizard brain start to kick in and engage? You might be clumsy like me. You might be greedy. You might be filled with lust. You might have stuff running around inside of you that's a little bit easier to kind of sweep under the rug. A couple of things that I know, based on my time as a pastor that people really struggle with around here. We struggle with our intelligence 
And I don't mean that like we're not intelligent people. We make an idol out of understanding and having knowledge. If we were to make a golden calf, it wouldn't be a golden calf, it would be a golden Wikipedia page or a golden encyclopedia if you're from a previous era. We love knowing things. We live in a highly educated part of the world. We hear phrases on the radio like, what we know now. You ever heard someone say that? It puts to the side the previous scholarship and looks instead at what's new and trendy and right in front of you. Education is the solution to all of our problems. Oh, so-and-so didn't know what to do when they encountered that situation. We just need to educate them. We just need to have better teaching on this subject. We just need you to have more information poured down into your gullet like oil in your car. No, that's not going to fix all of our problems. But it's an idol because we think it will. And we give a lot of power to it. And I'm not anti-education. I married a teacher. Like, this, that's not a thing for me. But I believe that we have placed too much premium on what intelligence and education can do in human life. Another idol that I've observed, and I've been party to this too, is kids and families. The East Side is a family-friendly place. We love to be able to bring our kids places. Those of us who have been called to be parents, I get it. But as much as we love to celebrate and serve and care for our children, they can very easily become an idol. Actually, their success, their comfort, can become an idol. A couple years ago, I was talking with some friends about baseball. I've managed my son's baseball team. It's one of my favorite things. And this is several years ago. The friends of my son were starting to get involved in year-round baseball in First grade, second grade. And if you're involved in that, like, I'm not judging any of that. I just, it's not right for us. But I felt this tug in my spirit of, well, if everyone else is doing it, like, shouldn't I be doing this too? Like, I don't want my kid to fall behind. I don't want this. I don't want that. Everybody in the room who has a kid or a grandkid, you know that feeling. You see someone else running faster than you on the treadmill, and you want to bump the speed up on the treadmill. Do you not? This is the social pressure we all live with. Kids know when we are putting too much on them. They're not dumb. Kids know when you feel anxious about their performance. Kids know that they should not have so many expectations placed on them. One of my rules for my baseball team is we're going to have a positive experience for our kids because kids have too much negativity. There's too much negativity in the world. Let's make baseball a positive place for them. That, that, that is a, a rock-solid commitment for my team and my coaches. And every one of us knows the pain of the opposite of that. Maybe the umbrella under which all these idols reside is the idol of success. This is, again, from Timothy Keller's book. More than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are little g, God, that our security and value rest in our own wisdom, strength, and performance. To be the very best at what you do, to be a subject matter expert, to be a VP of whatever, is to be at the top of the heap. It means no one else is like you. You, Eastsiders, are supreme. One sign that you've made success an idol is the false sense of security it brings. This is so fascinating to me. The poor and the marginalized expect suffering. They know that life on earth is nasty, brutish, and short. But... Successful people are much more shocked and overwhelmed by troubles. Successful people will say, life isn't supposed to be this way. 
when they face tragedy. I have never heard the working class or the poor say that. The false sense of security comes from deifying our achievement, giving it godlike value in our lives, and expecting it to keep us safe from the troubles of life in a way that only God can. I heard many successful people say to me after COVID hit, life is not supposed to be like this. And I went, I agree, but man, like, is it really that bad? Like, are we, re- like, are we really feeling this in such a way where we are so torn apart, where we are fragmented? And COVID took so much away from all of us. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm just saying, successful people expect to be able to control their environment. And one of the things that pandemic did and continues to do is tell us that we are not in control. We are not. But our success flaps up against that. If you've made it to a big company on the east side, if you have gotten your stock shares and your options and all that, you've arrived until tragedy strikes. Until something happens to you that is out of your control. And the only thing that can sit on the throne of our hearts and give us peace and give us hope and give us life in the midst of tragedy and trials, which will happen, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else can withstand that pressure. Nothing else can hold firm under dire circumstances. Now, the pathway that I want to encourage us to consider as we kind of make the turn toward the end of the sermon here is find and replace. So my favorite word processing programs have the little find and replace button on them, right? You type in the word that you want to find and you tell it what to replace it with. It's so satisfying. So you need to find your idols and you need to replace them. You can't get rid of idols. Human beings are designed to worship. So we will find something. But our goal is to put Jesus Christ in the rightful place on the throne of our hearts. So how do you find your idols? First, you have to accept the premise that you have idols. You have to begin with the premise that there is something or someone in your life that has an undue level of power over you. Like the rich young ruler, you probably can't see it. Because we are inherently subjective creatures. We are not able to make objective observations about our life and our conduct. This is why we need community. This is why we need friendship and conversations around this kind of thing. Find your idols. How do you do that? First of all, you got to keep watch. That same Greek word that was used in uh, our primary passage to keep away from idols, that's the same word in Luke chapter 2 that is used to describe the shepherds. The shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Keep watch, church, over your heart for when you are letting idols in. For when you are letting something have too much power over you. When you are so broken apart by someone or something or some word that is spoken to you, examine that. Because that may be the very entry point for an idol in your life. And know this, that a hurried, harried, busy life will not make room for you to examine your idols. You want to take a hard look at the things that you're giving too much power to, you've got to stop telling yourself you're too busy to do it. There's a level of self-reflection that can achieve this, and and we'll give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. The other thing you have to have, church, is you have to have people around you who love you enough to be honest with you, who can help you see your blind spots, 
who can be like Jesus to you with the rich young ruler and hold up a mirror and say, do you see this? Are you happy with this? Do you know how much of your life is being devoted to material, fleeting things? Like, are you okay with that? And the person who can say that to you lovingly, fairly, kindly, graciously, that's a rare bird. It may be your spouse. It may be that you need to start a friendship with another follower of Jesus and just say, look, I'm thinking about idols and I need some help. Would you help me kind of evaluate these things that have happened to me? Maybe it's time to go see a counselor. Maybe it's time to sign up for spiritual direction. There are a lot of different resources, but if we are relying solely on ourselves to identify our idols, we're going to be in a cul-de-sac, driving in circles. You need people around you. I need people around me to help me see the places where I am broken, where I am failing, where I am flailing against idols that I cannot recognize. So to that end, we want to give you an opportunity now to reflect. So I'm going to ask Faith and Tyler to hand out these pink sheets for everybody. And we're going to take just a few minutes. Adults and kids can do this together. And these are a list of idols, of counterfeit gods that I've drawn from Tim Keller's book. And we're just going to take a couple minutes and just kind of reflect on which of these might land for you. Not all of them will. And then we're going to take time and pray. And I want to encourage you, take these sheets home with you, put it somewhere where you can reflect on it. The goal of this time is not just to reflect and come up with your laundry list of idols. The goal is to draw yourself into a relationship, a friendship, a mentorship, where you can actually talk about it. So you can see there, there's a list of personal idols, family and children, career and making money. These are some of the things that we've talked about. There are cultural idols, too. If you grew up in a a Western American context, self-discovery, individual freedom, those will resonate with you. If you grew up in a more traditional culture, duty, hard work, moral virtue, those will appeal to you. We need to recognize that a lot of our idols we've come up with, that's the personal idols, and a lot of our idols have been given to us by our culture, and we need to assess and exegete those so that we can address them. So I'm going to invite you to take a few minutes. You can get up if you want to. Remember, we have kids in worship, so like noise is normal. Like That's okay. And we're just going to take some time and reflect on this. You can circle. You can draw. You're not going to be asked to present this at the end before you leave or anything like that. And then just take an opportunity on your own to reflect on this. And in a few minutes, I'll invite you to get into groups, and you're just going to pray for each other. And if you want to be brave and share a conviction that you felt as a result of this reflection, that's great. Let's recognize that it's really hard to jump into a group and talk to people that you may not know well. So when you get into your groups, you may just want to ask for prayer. That's fine, too. Okay? So take some time, reflect. I'll keep an eye on our time, and then I'll call us together in groups in just a few minutes. Let's take time and look at uh, this sheet, and I'll ask God to guide us in this time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect. Sometimes when we're just moving from one thing to another to another, we don't slow down to do this. So help us. Help us to hold out before you the very real likelihood that we have idols in our lives that we cannot see, and that we need your help to see. Thanks for the witness of of people who've contributed to this scholarship, like Timothy Keller or the poet here, William Cowper. Thank you for wise people who have helped to steer us in this conversation. Bless the time that we now have to reflect. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a couple minutes and just reflect.